Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to theologian Gary Anderson about the surprising things the biblical tradition has to say about the poor, about charity, and about charity's rewards. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on February 15th, 2022 in central Phoenix, Arizona. And we are speaking with someone whose climatological situation is almost certainly uh, very different than our current 77 or so degrees because our guest, Dr. Gary Anderson, is coming to us from South Bend, Indiana, my old home territory where the winds and temperatures and gray skies of mid-February are uh, legendarily penitential, one might say. Um, so we'll distract Professor Anderson from the weather by taking 45 minutes or so of his time to talk about charity and the Jewish and Christian traditions. Dr. Anderson is the Hesburgh Professor of Catholic Thought at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of numerous articles and several very important books, among which are Sin, A History, published by Yale University Press in 2009, and the book I will be talking with him about today, Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, published in 2013 by Yale University Press. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Anderson because his book is one that really uh, challenged and changed my own views about charity and how it fits into my own faith commitments. And I'm also pleased to do so because we have yet to speak with a theologian uh, the tacit rule in our contemporary public life being that one does not introduce theologians into mixed company. We're going to ignore that rule, however, uh, because it's important that everyone, whatever their faith commitments, understand what charity once was, how it came to be, and how it has changed. And with that, Gary Anderson, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is our great pleasure to have you uh, and to have the chance to learn from you uh, I know that no one in the world knows more about this topic than you do. And I think it's one that will, uh, the content of what you have to say will probably surprise many of our listeners who don't really know much as I didn't know much about the real sort of role and concept of charity in the biblical tradition. So let's just jump right in there and see how far we can get in coming to understand how the Bible or more broadly, the biblical tradition, since we're talking about uh, both uh, the, the the scriptures, Jewish and Christian expressions here, how the Bible understands charity. So in your book, you begin by saying that first we need to understand how to understand sin before we can understand charity and that the understanding of sin sort of changes as we go through the Old Testament period. Can you walk us through that change, how, how the understanding of ch sin changes over uh, the time period covered in the Old Testament and how, how sin is related to charity? Uh, in that way? Yes, I'd be certainly happy to do that. And I, I think you're absolutely correct that concepts of sin and concepts of charity uh, work uh, in a kind of amazingly symbiotic fashion, certainly by the time we get to the New Testament. I would just want to introduce just a slight caveat. I think we can appreciate the value of charity apart from the distinctive character of sin. Uh, they're not uh, connected necessarily, but they they are connected nonetheless, and I think uh, the point that you opened with is certainly accurate. Um, and really, the, 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 the history that you alluded to is pretty easy to summarize. In the uh, Old Testament itself, that is the Jewish scriptures, uh, there are a variety of images or metaphors for sin, but the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly most common one would, that be, would be that of a sin as a burden that an individual must carry. Uh, and nicely reflected in the Yom Kippur ritual in the book of Leviticus, where the sins of Israel are offloaded, offloaded onto a pack animal who carries them away. Uh, we get this also in the New Testament, the Lamb of God who carries away, takes away the sins of the world. That's very much the notion of sin as a weight offloaded onto an animal to remove uh, from the human domain. 
Um, but the image that becomes much more popular at the end of the Old Testament period and certainly dominant in the New Testament period and the rabbinic period is that of sin as a debt. And where we can see that most obviously would be in the uh, Lord's Prayer, uh, the Our Father, as it's known to Catholics, uh, which, as many people know, should most properly be translated, forgive us our debts as we forgive those whom, over whom we hold debts. Of course, it's normally translated trespasses. Uh, but the underlying Greek uh, noun there is debt. And the word for forgive is uh, most uh, at home in the notion of forgiving a debt uh, that you have the right to collect. Uh, so that's what forgiveness is. Someone owes you something. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a financial sum of some sort, uh, and you choose not to collect. That mm -hmm. is forgiveness, forgiving uh, the debts of others. And that becomes uh, certainly one of the most common images in the New Testament and explains why uh, Jesus talks about debtors and creditors so often in the Gospels. It's not so much his own personal choice to use that image, uh, but it's very much the image of the day, the image of his contemporary, you know, Aramaic and uh, Hebrew language. And uh, the reason why that's related to charity is that uh, charity is understood as uh, a act of human virtue that among all of its other many benefits uh, accrues a treasure in heaven. Uh, and that's where the, you might want to say, the compatibility of sin is debt, you know, charitable act comes into play. If when you sin, uh, you create a debit in heaven, uh, when you give to the poor or the undeserving, uh, you are depositing into a treasury hmm. in heaven, and you can draw down that treasury, one might want to say, or pay off those debts, you might want to say, would be the better way to put it, uh, by your uh, good actions. And that's certainly why in Christendom, up to the time of the Reformation, acts of charity were so important, especially in penitential seasons like uh, Lent, uh, because they were thought to contribute to uh, your uh, playing your role in the forgiveness of sins. They sort of lower that side of the ledger, so to speak, acts of charity uh, in right. heaven. Yeah. It was, if we just stay sort of in the Old Testament for now, before we move forward, where where does this sort of um, concept uh, get most talked about? What are the sort of the books of the Old Testament or, or passages that people might look up themselves if they're interested? Well, uh, part of the problem, of course, is not, not all translations are going to uh, lender, render the underlying Hebrew literally enough, so uh, frequently you'll miss it. Um, but uh, the classic text uh, certainly um, referred to time and again in the Church Fathers, and again, actually often referred to in the Reformation and debates between Catholics and Protestants, is Daniel chapter 4. I think it's verse 24. I'm a little bit embarrassed here. The English... Chap we'll take chapters. That's fine. <laughs> okay. The, English, the reason why I'm a little embarrassed is the English and the Hebrew versification differ. So in mm. one version, I know it's verse 24. The other, it's verse 27. So it depends on what you're looking at. But it's a famous text in which Daniel um, is exhorting King Nebuchadnezzar uh, to uh, enact to en enact penitential actions for his sins, uh, and he tells them that he can forgive his sins through uh, charitable actions. So there, you clearly have the notion that charitable actions presumably pay down uh, the debts that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has accrued. We also can find this notion in Leviticus 26. Uh, which talks about how Israel can repay uh, the sins that she's accrued that have led to the exile. Again, I'm not sure most English uh, um, translations are going to render it exactly, but uh, mm. the idiom, the underlying Hebrew idiom there is clearly paying down a debt. And uh, Isaiah 40, the very famous text many uh, Bible readers know, uh, that begins, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Um, the text in which uh, God exhorts the prophet to uh, comfort the people of Israel who are in exile, who are about to be redeemed from exile. Uh, and a couple of verses in, he says that they are to be comforted because their uh, sins, that is understood the debts of their sins, have been uh, paid off, have been satisfied. Uh, so those would probably be the classic 
biblical texts, most of them, according to modern biblical scholars, would be datable to the Second Temple period, that is the fifth, fourth, and even third centuries uh, before the Common Era. Uh, so we're near the end of the biblical period. If you really wanted to see a more robust use uh, of the notion of the debt metaphor, you have to look at either the um, uh, intertestamental books, the apocryphal books, or what Catholics would call the deuterocanonical books, Dead Sea Scrolls, or even best, uh, the Mishnah, uh, the rabbinic mm. uh, texts that would be contemporaneous with uh, Jesus. Uh, Tobit and Sirach are, are two of the De- deuterocanonical books, right, that you're talking about? Exactly. And they're, you know, excellent sources uh, for uh, the imagery. Um, when we move into um, the New Testament, like you say, it's, it, is there any question uh, in what we have from, from Christ himself that he, um, is there any sense at all that he deviates from this understanding of, of, of sin and charity? Or does he deepen it? Does he change? Is there any alteration at all? Or does he really just pick it up and move it forward? You know, and in my, I mean, there obviously are uh, uh, notes that he sounds that are, you know, distinctive to his own preaching, but uh, much of uh, the imagery that's found in the parables, you can find almost all of it in contemporary Jewish sources. I think he's uh, very much dependent on, you know, a kind of standard mode of understanding charitable actions that, you know, uh, was at home in the synagogue. And I think that's probably the best way also to understand the church's implementation of uh, charity in the post-New Testament era. I think that, you know, both church and synagogue were very similar uh, in the way in which uh, this uh, charity was enacted within them. In fact, scholars uh, who uh, follow, for example, um, uh, Jewish and Christian charitable practices in medieval Spain uh, have documented, you know, considerable linguistic interchange between Latin and Hebrew, mm. um, quite striking. And why would that be the case? Why would Latin phrases come into Hebrew, for example, in, in Jewish documents? Well, they came into Jewish documents because, you know, the underlying theology was uh, so similar. Uh, so um, we we come out of the uh, of the um, uh, a time of Christ's uh, life. We're in the time of the early church, the early church fathers. Um, who among them um, picks up the concept of uh, uh, charity, acts of charity, as a way to um, uh, atone for sin, uh, for for debts um, accumulated? Who who would be the key figures here, and what do they have to say to us? Well, I think the key fi- there. I mean, you, you, I don't think you could really identify key figures. Mm. It becomes really the the heritage, as it were, of um, the patrimony, really, of uh, all the church fathers going mm. forward. Mm. And um, scholars of late antiquity have have certainly documented this. One of the ways in which you can really see the effect of Christian practices is uh, the imprint it makes on the Latin and Greek language. Um, Paul Vane, a very famous <clears throat> non-Christian, I'm presuming uh, an atheist uh, scholar of this period, uh, not in spite of his own religious predilections, uh, mentioned in his very famous book, Bread and Circuses, on generosity in the Roman era, that um, words like hospital, um, orphanage, uh, you know, poorhouses, these are all what he would call neologisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, Byzantine, Greek, and Latin uh, that arise as the result of the development of these institutions by Christians. I guess if you wanted a contemporary example, if you looked at words for um, computer hardware and software in European languages, you'd notice that a lot of them are simply English words that have been borrowed into French, German, right. Italian, what have you. And uh, if you were living a thousand years from now, uh, if you notice that that datum, you would know that you know computer technology must have begun in an English-speaking country, or that must have been the heart right. and soul of the dissemination of computer technology. The language gives language borrowing gives that away, and you could say the same thing. That's essentially, what Paul Vane says: you can look at the language of contemporary Greek and Latin, the third, fourth, and fifth centuries, and see. Uh, 
objective evidence that you know uh, Christian attitudes towards the poor have made an enormous imprint on Greco-Roman culture. Charity becomes, as you say, the common patrimony of the church in terms of its uh, in, in practice, acts of charity, and we get these completely new institutions, which I'm glad you touched on that because it's important for people to know that there was no such thing as a hospital or an orphanage, uh, essentially, uh, prior to the Christian period. But does the theology of charity, though, does that get further developed by any of the early church fathers? Is there, an, again, in the sense of I'm trying to kind of lead us towards whether there's any sort of controversy over how we are to understand um, charity's place theologically in, in the Christian tradition, or the church fathers sort of won on this? So the fathers are pretty much of, of one mind on this. I guess I would want to say one thing. What, the theological question, I think, is crucial. So why uh, did charity become mm-hmm. such a significant virtue, we might want mm-hmm. to say, in Christian practice? And here, this is maybe the biggest, was the biggest surprise perhaps for me, and I think the biggest surprise for many moderns. Uh, I think modern people tend to evaluate, well, I'm going to get to the, well, a couple things I want to say, but modern people tend to evaluate charity, I would say, on two different grids. One on self-interest as opposed to altruistic giving. Uh, and the other grid would be what it accomplishes, you know, with respect to the domain of uh, social justice. You know, what mm-hmm. concrete change uh, does it introduce uh, into the culture at large? Now, let me just give a footnote to the second one. I think it's very important to mention, you know, the, the institutions of hospitals, orphanages and, and so forth into the equation. Because in modern discourse, you'll find many people criticizing the concept of Christian charity because they reduce it to an individual in December dropping coins into a Salvation Army bucket. Now, I don't have anything against dropping coins into a Salvation Army bucket. That's a good thing to do. Uh, But I think what you'll find, especially in Marxist-oriented criticism, is that Christians aren't really interested in addressing social injustices. All they want to do is ease their guilty conscience uh, about, you know, the wealth they possess. And I think when we look again at this evidence that Paul Vane collects, we can see that's decidedly not the case. What Christians were very interested in doing from the very get-go was creating institutions that addressed structural problems. Um, Now, they were also interested in the individual virtues of giving, to be sure. They weren't opposed to that, uh, but uh, they were also deeply invested in uh, what moderns would say are, you know, concerns for uh, social justice. So Mm -hmm. I think that needs to be, you know, strongly uh, emphasized that charity and social justice are not, you know, um, in opposition here. Um, But going back to the theological point, the more important point here, I mentioned the altruism issue. The problem with modern assessments of charity, we might want to say in terms of how Christians understood it, is that they're all, what I would say, located on the horizontal plane. They're all concerned with uh, the way in which one human interacts with another human. Whereas what struck Jews and Christians about charity is that these actions had a sacramental character to them, by which I mean they connected you to God, um, and that's what really made them so tremendously significant. They weren't simply helping another. They were that, but they were that and far more. They were, through helping another, uh, the way of uh, worshiping, adoring, and loving God. Uh, and that's the huge element, I think, that's often missed, and that explains why within the early church charitable actions had the extraordinary um, value they did and why they drove the creation of these extraordinary institutions that didn't have any parallels in, in uh, Greco-Roman culture. Yeah, it's, um, you're right that it, it, people try to divide those things as a sort of critics of, of Christianity or charity. And we see this in the modern period um, going, you know, Certainly, in, in from the 1800s forward, but your point is that um, it was very there's the verticality of the of the thinking of early Christians that 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 promoted the larger sort of horizontality of, of charitable acts that, that 
these weren't opposed to one another. They were completely uh, intertwined or inextricable. Exactly. And I mean, one of the striking ways this comes out, and it is related to monetary imagery, but one of the most important um, verses in the Bible for, you know, nearly all the church fathers was a kind of surprising verse from the book of Proverbs, uh, which reads, mm-hmm. he who is generous to the poor makes a loan to God and God will repay him. Um, mm. So this notion that somehow uh, being generous to the poor involves not only helping the poor person, but it's actually making a loan to God. Now, where does that come from? Well, that comes from uh, a very important biblical law that we can see in the book of Exodus, um, in which in order to guarantee the security of uh, people without means, uh, ancient Israelites were commanded uh, to provide them with goods if they, you know, food and shelter if they had none. Um, and the way in which those that food and shelter would be provided uh, was in terms of a no interest loan. The idea there was mm-hmm. to protect the dignity of the person who received these goods. The sense was that you know they had fallen temporarily on hard luck, uh, but once you know circumstances turned to their betterment, they would eventually be able to repay. In other words, there was a concern for the dignity of the recipient not simply to give, which sometimes can be a means of shaming. Right. Uh, the person has no means to support themselves, so uh, you have to do that for them. Uh, the notion in biblical law was, yes, you have to support them, but at the same time you support them, you have to provide a means that in the future uh, they can repay uh, and uh, you know enjoy their dignity. Well, of course, sometimes individuals couldn't repay, mm-hmm. uh, but this is where the God piece comes into question. According to biblical law, uh, God would be the individual who would reward uh, the giver in this instance. And why would God do that? Because God has a special interest, compassion, and concern for the poor, a special identity with the poor, what we might call the preferential option for the poor. Right. Uh, God loves everybody equally, but he loves the poor the best. Uh, <laughs> and that's a very important notion. So right. that when you are helping the poor, you're helping someone, you know, who's a dear friend uh, of God. And uh, that's an enormous driver. That's, that's certainly what's behind Matthew 25, when Jesus says that the last judgment, you know, that uh, the, the blessed will enter the kingdom of heaven because they fed Jesus when he was hungry, they clothed him when he was naked, they visited him when he was, you know, sick. And according to Matthew 25, the individuals respond, well, we never saw you in any yeah. of those positions. And then Jesus responds, well, whenever you uh, you did this to a poor person, you really did it for me. That goes back to a very deep biblical legal principle. You can find it already in the mm. book of Exodus that's you know linked to, the, to what we might call this preferential option to the poor, God's attachment, his special love for the poor. So that helping the poor person is a means of, you know, helping and adoring God. It's interesting that as you were speaking there uh, towards the beginning, you brought up this concept that there was there was a sensitivity to protecting the dignity of the recipient of charity, even in this biblical period in which we're, that we're talking about, because one often gets the idea from reading sort of modern scholars that. It, this is a, a specifically democratic idea that, that uh, you know, protecting democratic dignity, the dignity of the democratic man is, um, it was sort of what was new about how to sort of do charity in the, in the, in the 1800s, 1900s, especially in America. So, um, maybe that's not right <laughs> that we've had sort of this concept of protecting the dignity of the recipient, giving in such a way that dignity is protected for much, much longer than the last couple hundred years. No, I think what what we have here, I mean, um, I can tell just with, my, you know, my parents who are growing older, they're in their 90s, and sometimes they need help with, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, rituals related to the bathroom. And for them, that's a very embarrassing thing to mm-hmm. have happen to them, to rely on other people for activities that they would much rather, you know, do themselves. I mean, at one level, it's very generous for people to help them. Uh, with, um, you know, toiletry, but it's also in some senses deeply shameful for the persons being helped. 
They would prefer to be able to do it themselves. And I think in antiquity was the same thing you might want to say with, you know, receiving money. Yes, it was a generous thing to help someone out. But if you were simply, if the giving was all in one direction, there, this could be humiliating. Uh, one wanted, you know, ideally to meet people on an equal plane or at least have a semblance of equality. Uh, so giving was always constructed with the notion that somehow uh, equality or, you know, reparation was, was in the picture that you, know, mm-hmm. you never gave uh, with the intent, either intended or not, of uh, humiliating the other. Well, with that, we will go to a break and we will be right back and continue our discussion with Dr. Gary Anderson about charity and the biblical tradition. Okay, time for a practicality and happy to have with us today Mark Diggs, who's a managing consultant in our direct response group here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you here. Mark is a very experienced um, professional in direct response, which for the uninitiated means uh, sort of direct mail and digital means of acquiring and cultivating and soliciting uh, givers. And... uh, I have one question for you, Mark. I've heard you make this analogy, and so I want you to talk about it to our audience here. How is direct response fundraising like fishing from a riverbank? That's a great question, and let me try to attempt to answer it. Um, Well, you know, the basic definition of direct response is that it's direct, uh, meaning it's measurable, it's accountable. It always contains a call to action with a direct response component like a reply device and a landing page or even a phone number. Uh, that helps you uh, helps the donor have a, a means where they can Im- immediately respond. That's you know some of the science of direct response. But the metaphor or the, or the analogy of fishing from the riverbank that that helps you understand kind of the art of direct response fundraising, especially how it differs from other types of fundraising, like uh, major gifts uh, cultivation. So you know every river it's always moving, right? And uh, if we're along the bank, we're stationary. We cast our lines into the bank. Or from the bank into the water, and the water is constantly sliding by as it flows. And uh, to me, this mirrors like the seasonality of, of direct response giving and just the cadence of it. So it's it's just a constant cadence, right? Um, so the nature of smaller gifts is they they derive from a different source in terms of uh, uh, budget uh, than major gifts or legacy giving, right? So it's you're not giving out of your assets. You're giving out of uh, really your monthly budget, and that's and it's not just the monthly budget, but it's the discretionary portion of the monthly budget. So it's the money that's left over after you spend, after you cover all of your expenses, and you decide what you're saving for the month. It's what's left over. So that's that's the bucket you make, you know, impulse purchases out of. It's also the bucket that typically you give direct response gifts to. So this is grassroots fundraising, lots of people involved, uh, smaller gift amounts, right? So, so that has implications, you know, for, uh, for how you're going to, how you're going to do your fundraising and, and how, how it's going to differ from. Well, what I like about, what I like about your analogy is that it's a sort of like major gifts fundraising would be like hopping in the boat and going out hunting for the big fish, you know, yeah, deep, deep <laughs> uh, you lake. Know. like, you know, those lakes, they, they right. create, they form by uh, uh, building dams and you have those 400 foot, they've got some of those here out in South Carolina where I'm at. Uh, yeah. yeah. That deep, cold water. Yep. And that's, that's right. well, as opposed to like a moving river. So, right. And it has implications, as you were saying, uh, when you think of direct response fundraising like this, uh, it kind of just was flowing by, it's given out a monthly budget for people. So how does, how does this impact if you're a development professional, kind of your annual calendar, like how you plan your fundraising strategy? Well, I mean, once the, once the river flows by that part of the river is never coming back. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's the point to be made. In other words, that, that discretionary budget, it's going to get spent one way or another. And once it's spent, that's mm-hmm. it. And then you move into the next month. So there's an opportunity mm-hmm. cost to not covering seasons of the year, count, uh, points of the year. And, you know, I don't want to be like hard and fast about it in terms of rules of thumb. But I just the, the basic thought is try to cover those seasons and, and months that are, that are going to be important to you. You know, many organizations are milling multiple times uh, a month or once a month. Uh, uh, it's going to mm-hmm. differ depending on your culture, your donor culture mm-hmm. and your organization's culture. But generally speaking, you want to be out there with lines in the water, right? So, yeah. 
so that has implications for like having your a fundraising plan. And what I try to do, we have a, you know we have clients that we've built direct response programs for from from scratch. So they've not done direct response before. Maybe we have uh, one client that uh, they had maybe two thousand donors when we started working with them. They've got eighty thousand now. Just you know, mm-hmm. two years later. Um, so we've built up a direct response grassroots file for them. Uh, um, so the way we did that was we planned out a calendar for the whole year. And what we're trying, what we're really shooting for is, I mean, we have some evergreen offers that are running all the time, especially on the digital side, but we also have campaigns and campaigns have a beginning and an end. So you mm-hmm. launch a campaign, you get response from that campaign. Let's say it takes a month, two months, three months for that to, to all wind down. And you're constantly moving on to the next campaign. So what we're trying to do are build what I call pillars. So pillar offers. So a pillar offer is something that you can, has some of the aspects of an evergreen offer, but uh, only in the sense that you can come back to it a year later. So like an mm-hmm. end of year campaign is a great example of that. Where, right. You know, right. You've got that December 31st natural deadline. And that's another thing I want to say. It's, it's like really the exclamation point I want to put on this is that you really want to drive towards urgency because of the nature of that flowing river, you've got to cast that line out and it's got, you know, the bait, the bait's got to be shiny and, it, and, it, and it's got to be timely. And part of that timeliness is saying, is making the case for why, why, why give now? Why is it important right now? And you really got to make that case uh, in order to, yeah, you know, in order to earn that gift. It's not a bad analogy, Mark. I admit it's pretty good. Oh, I like it. I like <laughs> thinking in terms of pictures, you know, if pictures are powerful and that's what I mean by yeah. like the art of fundraising. I like to, I like to feel it in, in terms of the picture that I have. And uh, yeah, it just, it, it, it really makes sense when it comes to the time and the effort. It's hard work. You've got to be out there. Fishing is hard work, you know, and you've got to be out there in the morning, you know, and you got to be out there in the evening. You got to be out there sometimes even midday. Love it. Mark Diggs. Thanks very much. Appreciate thanks, it. Jeremy. Appreciate it. Right, we are back with Professor Gary Anderson of the University of Notre Dame. We're talking about um, his book, Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, and about the concept, not just the book. <laughs> um, there's so many things I want to ask you, Dr. Anderson. I want, let's, let me just sort of start here. Um, in, in the biblical tradition, what counts as an act of charity? Uh, I think sometimes almsgiving gets gets sort of privilege in this uh, conversation that that's uh, maybe really what we're talking about or only what we're talking about. Is is that the case? Um, Or what all counts (laughs) as an act of charity? I think that, you know, almsgiving has a certain, we might want to say, priority or prestige because almsgiving, when you're putting your own financial assets at risk, uh, puts you at risk. Um, so the way in which, you know, money was conceived or the accumulation of wealth was conceived in the ancient world is not different than in the modern. I mean, why do people fund an IRA or a retirement account or what have you? Uh, because they want to have, you know, money when they no longer can work, when they become vulnerable. Um, language I can remember learning just as a little boy about why you should uh, have you know money in your savings account as the bank. Uh, you often would refer to that as a rainy day fund. In other words, uh, should Lady Fortune not smile on you but grimace, uh, you wanted to have resources to get through you know a difficult time. You fall sick, can't work, what have you. Um, so uh, certainly this was as well known in the ancient world as in the modern world, probably better appreciated there because there were not government agencies or anyone else to step in the breach. If uh, your your resources failed, you were out of luck. Uh, so giving to another from your own material goods, especially if it puts you at risk, uh, was an especially valoral, valorous thing to do. You might want to say, I mean, the highest um, moral action one could take on part of another would be dying for them. Uh, martyrdom, but you know most people, of course, don't have the occasion to uh, become martyrs. But uh, almsgiving was valued because everybody has the occasion, as it were, to put their own financial solvency at risk uh, by helping someone else. So 
that, so almsgiving always had a certain prestige because in a sense it was, again, maybe use an English phrase, it was putting your money where your mouth is, you know. You say you love the poor, you say you love God, well, show me. Um, let's see, you know, if you're really willing to take a risk uh, on behalf of another. Um, but as you indicated, in, you know, the Christian and Jewish realm, this wasn't the only way uh, one could um, uh, show uh, charitable disposition toward another, uh, visiting the sick, um, visiting those in prison, burying the dead. Uh, all of these were, you know, educating someone else. All of these were also uh, extremely valuable and frequently had the value of, uh, you know, charitable actions themselves. But they never, they never rose to the same, we might want to say, level of prestige because, you know, I, I, I visit, you know, a, a man regularly uh, uh, who is, he's in his 80s now, not well, and not many people see him. It's a, I do it as a religious virtue. I do it also because I like the man. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, I mean, it costs me time, uh, but it doesn't cost me in the same way as if I was to, you know, give like, uh, uh, Mother Teresa, all of my money to the poor right. and not even accept an endowment, as it were, for my religious order. I mean, that's just an act of trust in God and love for others that, you know, is, <laughs> in a sense, hard to wrap your head around. It's a level of risk taking that's not present in the other act, as as lovely as the other act is. Exactly. It doesn't, the the risk element isn't there. And that's, you know, I think it is, it's worth mentioning here. That's one of the reasons why Mother Teresa, of course, was uh, so highly esteemed by so many people because uh, uh, her act of uh, charity, charity toward the poor of Calcutta, you know, really was a total self-giving. And, and her acts of mercy, of course, attracted, you know, attention and admirers from around the world. And people did want to endow uh, her and her mission, but she refused the money. Um, she didn't want to be compromised by it. And um, uh, it's extremely, you know, uh, you know, commendable, but also very difficult to imitate. Uh, while we're on the topic of Mother Teresa, you, you point out in your book that um, a couple of well-known, many well-known figures, but a couple that you uh, point out by name and Steven Pinker and Christopher Hitchens were deeply repelled by Mother Teresa. Uh, why was that? How did they misunderstand her and what she stood for to uh, the vast majority of the world, seemingly? Well, I think what they didn't like, this would go back to our charity social justice issues, is that in her actions towards the poor of Calcutta, her concern was not to, um, let's say, organize the masses from below to appeal mm -hmm. to the Indian government to change, you know, this policy or that so that these structural inequities that were, you know, rampant in uh, Calcutta could be addressed and, and solved in a once and for all fashion. Um, and I mean, in a sense, that criticism is not unreasonable if, you know, one's charitable actions have in view, you know, uh, never have in view, let's put it, um, any kind of structural change within a culture that certainly wouldn't be good. But on the other hand, um, uh, it, it's, you know, I think, you know, completely wrongheaded to think that one's actions towards uh, the suffering and the ill should be uh, completely instrumental. Um, mm -hmm. This has had grave consequences in any number of areas. I know uh, I work or my wife works as a, uh, an advocate for uh, the mentally ill. And mm -hmm. one of the things you'll find, um, and this would be true for many, I think, domains of charity, People are willing to give lots of money to scientific research with the notion we're going to find that magic bullet, that pill that will eliminate all these symptoms, or they'll give to this or that, all of the things that are commendable. And I certainly am happy people give for them. But the hardest thing to raise money for is for people who just, you know, sit uh, day by day with these people and care for them. Right. Uh, because it doesn't accomplish anything other than give meaning to their lives, but it's not. It's not immeasurable in the same way, and it's very hard to raise money for that kind of thing. And I think, you know, the reason why it's hard to raise money for that type of thing is that we only value 
um, actions towards you know the poor or the suffering that somehow can be uh, measured in terms of solving you know the underlying structural problem. But there are many things in life that just uh, there's many moments of suffering that aren't amenable to that kind of grid. You know, visiting, staying with the sick or the elderly. I mean, yeah, I'd love to have a solution to Alzheimer's, but even if we had a solution to Alzheimer's, there still will be, you know, grave suffering associated with the elderly. They still need someone to sit by them and uh, be with them. And uh, it will always be a virtue to do that. And uh, it won't be it won't be a measurable. It won't be a, a solution to a problem. It'll be simply an accompaniment uh, of those who suffer. And I think for Mother Teresa, that was her charism. Um, not everyone is, you know, called to change society. Some people are called to simply be with those who suffer. And uh, mm -hmm. I think thought it was a, a, a gross um, a travesty that you know she would be so you know uh, strongly criticized by Pinker for this. And I, the other thing I guess I tried to say in my book is that why people I think valorized her that is Mother Teresa, over Bill Gates, for example. And I have nothing against Bill Gates. He's obviously, well, I mean, the recent you know, revelations <laughs> with respect to Mr. Epstein, we won't go into that uh, dimension, um, and his personal life. But let's just, if we just talk yeah. about his philanthropic efforts, um, I, I totally laud them. I think they're incredibly commendable. But um uh, it's also worth you know paying attention to the fact that however many billions he gives away, he still has billions in reserve. Right. Um, his day-to-day -day life is not impacted by his giving, uh, and that's the big difference with Mother Teresa. That's why people you know are so in awe of her is that her daily life was completely transformed by her giving, right. um, and her. That transformation is a witness to, you know, the character of God, God's love for the world. And that, in the end, is what people really uh, honor, respect, and stand in awe of. And I think we often don't uh, take sufficient measure of that dimension of her actions. Another uh, criticism of, of sort of the charity, the Christian concept of charity, specifically Christian concepts of charity or Judeo-Christian, um, it's not only what you were just getting at, that it doesn't look enough at um, solving root problems, systemic issues, that if we could just get at those, we wouldn't have you know, any poverty anymore and so on. Um, but the other critici criticism is, and I guess this probably was leveled at Mother Teresa herself from time to time, is that it doesn't distinguish uh, at all or enough between the so-called deserving and undeserving poor, um, it, which is, seems like to be a very modern concept. I think, at least in my own reading, that we sort of really start to get in the 19th century. Um, is there any sort of like distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor in the in the biblical period or in the biblical tradition? Uh, there, yes, there is. Already in the book of Tobit, he will refer to the righteous poor. Um, so I think he distinguishes between, you know, individuals who are poor, who are worthy of our charity and those who are not on the other. But I wouldn't want to push that too far. I think your underlying sensibility here is accurate. I think in the modern period, uh, what happens is that that element, that distinction, which we can find in classic Jewish and Christian sources, is magnified uh, and perhaps given you know, a, a kind of urgency and importance that it doesn't have in antiquity, because what happens in the early modern period, and you alluded to it, um, is this, you know, this sense somewhat, you know, hubristic, we might want to say that, you know, given the right social policies, we could actually eliminate poverty. And um, so mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of social engineering is geared towards, you know, uh, motivating the poor to get to work and distinguishing, you know, the deserving from the undeserving. And yes, this becomes an enormous modern issue and where you're actually extremely accurate when we ac witness um, the that transformation, which really happens in the 17th century or so, we'll see a number of uh, Christian writers come forward and argue against means testing. Uh, and what are their theological uh, points for that? They say, well, uh, 
uh, Christian charitable actions are meant to mirror God's, you know, unfathomable grace. And just as we receive grace from God, though we are undeserving uh, of that grace, so when we, you know, give, uh, act graciously to others, uh, we should give to other people, you know, unreservedly without, you know, calculating uh, their worthiness of uh, receipt. Um, well, you know, so, uh, but having said that, you know, uh, it would be inaccurate to say all Christian giving in the Byzantine, medieval, and early modern period was, you know, uh, uh, didn't take into, into consideration deserving or undeserving. That wouldn't be accurate. Um, but it certainly didn't attach uh, the same kind of value judgment we see in the modern period. If you really wanted to see the difference, I've frequently mentioned this to students. I think if you look at any big American city, uh, South Bend would be a good example. Uh, and you looked at where the churches come in in order to fill in the gaps that you know governmental support can't fill. You'll see, with respect to the government, um, that you know giving is definitely. Uh, grounded to a degree in deserving. Uh, there are many things that can throw you off social welfare roles uh, and make you a, a homeless person and, you know, outside the boundary of uh, governmental assistance. But if you look at homeless shelters, soup kitchens, uh, those are non-governmental agencies, almost always run by churches that provide, you know, a place to sleep or a warm meal, irrespective of, you know, what the moral character of the recipient is. Um, and some people abuse that. There are people right, that show up. Right. My wife is at a, at, a, at a soup kitchen. People show up in Cadillacs. They want to see what the soup is for the day to decide whether they're going to you know, uh, enjoy it or not. But you know, the soup kitchen doesn't say, well, you can't have the soup because you, know, you drove up in that car or because you're, right. you're looking at the type of soup. That's, that's not the mode of giving that's on display there. Yeah, you're, it seems as if if you adhere more closely to this traditional sort of con, um, conception of charity, you're willing to live with a lot more inefficiency than if you are more sort of an adherent to the modern concept of, of charity. Exactly. And I think that's that's also very much behind, you might want to say, Mother Teresa. There's just a kind of gratuity to generosity that's mm -hmm. calculating its instrumental value. Uh, it's simply, you know, grounded in the notion that uh, one must give one's entire, you know, life to uh, the service of others and God. Uh, Dr. Anderson, what do Protestant theologians think of all this, or what do they say about your work? Um, because it, it, it certainly we're getting into here a, a significant ecclesial difference, it seems to me, and at least the understanding of sort of the salvific efficacy of charity, and that it has any sort of salvific value. Uh, there's a sort of a different attitude often towards the poor uh, that comes out in sort of the post-Reformation period, as you were alluding to. But what, what do they say about all this? There, certainly, if you read, you know, material from the 16th, 17th century, this, uh, and this was a big surprise to me when I wrote my book, there are um, extraordinary differences and uh, disputes, not about the value of charitable actions. I mean, mm -hmm. the Protestant Reformation is as committed as Catholics are to uh, being good to the poor, uh, but the mode of delivery, as well as the way in which it's construed theologically, uh, differ um, considerably. I remember reading a very good book by uh, Stephen Greenblatt, a scholar of Shakespeare right. at Harvard, called Hamlet and Purgatory, which is kind of a mistitled book um, because Hamlet is only the subject of the last chapter or two. Most of the book is about purgatory. Uh, and it was deeply illuminating to me because I had no idea uh, how purgatory functioned in this period. Um, it's still, a, of course, a classic you know, Catholic notion that's affirmed. But you might want to say in the daily piety of Catholics, uh, the uh, role of purgatory is completely different uh, than what it was in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, and charitable actions in the Reformation uh, uh, were geared toward reducing time in purgatory. That's one of the reasons why uh, they were so valuable. There's say a lot more about that 
But uh, in the modern era, I think notionally Catholics would still affirm that, uh, but it doesn't constitute any longer in the modern period the kind of you know spinal column of Catholic piety. So in the modern period, because that you know is so different, the differences have you know uh, I think many of the differences have become less uh, less pronounced. Um, the question of purgatory and individuals' mm-hmm. contribution to uh, their you know safe escort to the world to come were all notions that were deeply opposed uh, by the Protestant uh, reformers. And um, that constituted enormous battleground in the 16th century. In the modern period, I'd say if you wanted to see an ongoing you know, difference, a different sensibilities about Protestants and Catholics on this question, it would come down to the question of uh, human meritorious activity, uh, the degree to which you know human agency has any value uh, in securing you know forgiveness from God. I think Catholics have a place, m- more of a place for human agency uh, in general uh, than Protestants do, and so the notion of uh, charitable actions as somehow contributing in some substantial way to your salvation. That's an idea that's going to be more comfortable within a Catholic frame of reference, whereas Protestants would say charitable activity is rather the fruits uh, right. that uh, uh, flow from uh, one's uh, salvation, you know, one's establishment, mm-hmm. one's salvation. Um, uh, and, you know, I, th- I mean, both you could find, you know, that Protestant sensibility within Catholic context as well. I don't want to overdraw the difference. Uh, but uh, the difference still exists. Well, let me uh, close with one final question here. Um, Assuming you've thought of this, maybe I'm sure you have. (laughs) One doesn't do all this scholarship only for scholarship's sake, typically. Um, uh, How would you hope, um, perhaps, that your works are recovering so sort of the, the tradition on charity uh, would affect how, say, religious leaders in particular, maybe particularly within the Catholic Church, would preach and talk about, um, think about charity? Uh, what would your hope be there? I think, you know, I'll, I mean, the, the effect on me, I guess I would just uh, extrapolate to what I would want fellow Catholic believers to appreciate is that, you know, charitable actions are, we might want to say, uh, at the very heart and center of what we would call the Christological mystery, uh, that in, in giving to the poor and giving ourselves to the poor, putting, let's say, our own uh, you know, financial security, security at risk to help others uh, is very much you know, what the Christological mystery is all about. And so that charitable actions become uh, uh, the expression of the Christian faith, our pedagogy, we might want to say, in the Christian faith. I think what I thought before I engaged in the research, I thought I knew charity was important, but I always thought it was a kind of secondary, you know, outflow from uh, right. a primary, you know, faith that was, you know, uh, secured independent of the charitable actions. But uh, as I, you know, dealt, d- dove into the literature, I saw that that was an enormous misconstrual <laughs> of the biblical legacy that, you know, charitable actions are you know, the very expression of the Christological mystery. And that's why, you know, charitable actions were so much at the forefront of the early church's, you know, actions. Beautifully put. Um, Dr. Uh, Gary Anderson uh, from the University of Notre Dame, author of Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition. Thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciated it very much. A wonderful, uh, wonderful stuff for for everyone to think about. And we'll, um, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you.